The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. If you have a Bible this morning, open it up to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Uh, If you're new to Christianity, you're checking it out. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Um, And so we're going to be in the ninth chapter, looking at the last four or five verses there. We are wrapping up our series called Good News, um, why it's so important that we invite others to this journey of faith that God has called us to. Next week, we are launching into a series that will be in for the next couple of months called Explore God. And we're actually doing this series in partnership with a, with a ministry called Transforming the Bay with Christ, which seeks to seek a gospel revitalization movement throughout the whole Bay Area. And we are one of hundreds of churches that we'll be talking about for the next two months, some of the big questions of faith that people have. So we're other churches that many of which you may know, Cathedral of Faith, Menlo Presbyterian, Twin Lakes Church, lots of other churches in the Bay Area are doing this. Some of our topics the next couple of months will be, what is the purpose of life? Why do bad things happen to people? How can you trust the Bible? Is Jesus really God? Why is Christianity so narrow? And all sorts of different questions like that. So if you have friends or family members, people you know who love to wrestle with kind of those questions, I would love for you to bring them. And that's what we're gonna be diving into next week. Well, today is we're in Matthew chapter nine. It's wrapping up this series. One of the uh, one of the astonishing things of living in this time and in this place is that the internet has changed a lot of life right? Like understatement of the day, right? Internet has changed a lot of life. And many of us, and certainly many of you, even more so than me, remember what life was like in the pre-internet and even pre-computer age. And one of the many things that, that the internet has changed for so many people is how you would go to get a job, right? Because now if you are looking for a job, what's probably one of the very first things you're going to do? You're going to go online and you're going to search for jobs, And so how did people used to get jobs? Well, kind of a few ways. Number one, which still happens to this day, you're referred by someone, right? A friend or a family member is like, hey, so-and-so would be great at this. And they reach out to you or the employer does. And that still works today. That's great. But outside of that personal connection before the internet, you basically had two options. One was you would get a newspaper. Remember those? Remember newspapers? And you would look through the classified section to find who was hiring and you'd highlight the phone numbers that you wanted to call and reach out to, to inquire. Or you would start walking around and you would look for shops or businesses with this sign in their window. Who has, oh, I guess we're, we're paused. Who has, there it is. Who has a help wanted sign in the window, right? Because it's a sign that says, hey, we need more people to work here. And so you'd go in and you'd inquire to the position as to what is needed. In Matthew chapter nine, I think it's as if Jesus is holding up a help wanted sign. Not that Jesus needs our help, but Jesus is inviting you and me to partner along with what he is doing in the world. And as Christians, we get this amazing task and amazing privilege to be a part of what Jesus wants to accomplish here. And he invites you and I along with him. So let's read our passage for this morning. Matthew 9, starting at verse 35, says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. They were because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This morning, we're looking at four ways that we can partner with what God is doing in the world through this passage and what Jesus highlights. And the first way is this, is that we can catch Jesus's heart for the lost. The first way to partner with what Jesus is doing in the world is to catch Jesus's heart for the lost. The crowd in verse 36 has a description. It says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, harassed and helpless, we shouldn't think this in a physical way. They're not like scared for their safety. So they're running out to find Jesus out in the wilderness. But this is the spiritual condition in which Jesus perceives their hearts, that they are helpless, they're harassed. They're looking for fulfillment, looking for things in all the wrong places, not resting, not trusting in God. And so he uses a metaphor that they're like sheep without a shepherd. This metaphor for them would have had both cultural as well as biblical and spiritual significance that his audience would have readily understood. Culturally, they were in an agricultural area where sheep were prevalent. And there's a reason why walking around and hiking in California, you don't see wild sheep roaming the countrysides here because sheep without a shepherd don't survive for very long. They're not a wild animal. They need a shepherd to protect them. And so they would have understood that this is a bad situation to be a sheep without a shepherd. It also has rich cultural and and scriptural context as well throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, way back throughout even Genesis and Exodus, a description of people without a leader wandering about are people who are like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, this metaphor of a shepherd being a leader for people, including certainly spiritual leadership is seen throughout even the New Testament carried into this time. And of course, Jesus himself calls himself the good shepherd. So Jesus sees people who are far from him, wandering, helpless. And what is his response in verse 36? He had compassion for them. Jesus sees people, he sees their deep need and he's moved with compassion. This word translated compassion, some translations translate it pity. It is hard to to get this word in this passage into an English word. It literally means Jesus is turned over, has a gut reaction that physically makes him sick that he's moved so hard. That that is the response. He's moved so much that he sees it. And it's a physical movement inside of him of, oh my goodness, it's a gut-wrenching compassion and sympathy for someone else. See, we see this response of Jesus regularly to people in in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 14, right before the feeding of the 5,000, it says this, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In a well-known parable of Jesus in Matthew 18, a parable of, of a master forgiving a great debt of the servant, Jesus says this, and out of pity for him, that's compassion out of pity for him, same word, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. When Jesus encounters a blind man in Matthew 20, it says, and Jesus in pity, in compassion, same word, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. See, what what we see regularly, and we see this pattern throughout the whole book of Matthew, is that when Jesus is moved with compassion for something, it's not just that Jesus goes, oh, well, I feel bad for you, right? It's not like the blind people come to Jesus and it's like, I'm sorry, that's too bad. The hungry people don't come and Jesus says, well, good luck finding some food. Jesus is moved with compassion and then meets their need. 
right? That's always in Matthew. He's moved with compassion and then he does something about it. Notice what's shocking in Matthew 9. Jesus is moved with compassion. And so he says, we need more people to go out into the harvest. We need more people. That's the answer to Jesus's seeing of the need that he perceives in the world. See, Jesus filled with compassion is one who moves towards those who are hurting and needy. Jesus sees the crowds harassed and helpless and he moves towards them. He has compassion on them. See, for many of us, our natural inclination is to draw back, right? We think, do do I have the time, the emotional energy and resources for this person? I don't think I do. And we step back. When Jesus calls us to lean in with compassion on those who are hurting. See, the the Bible is filled in the New Testament. The gospels are filled with images and stories of Jesus moving in towards those who are in need. In Luke 15, the parables of of Jesus seeking something that is lost. It's it's Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He seeks after, he leaves and he goes and pursues the one who is off and who is hurting. In Mark chapter two, describing Jesus's own ministry, he says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, and I imagine Jesus using air quotes here. The righteous, those who think they're good. The righteous, you who don't think you need any help from anyone but can survive. I didn't come to call the the righteous, but sinners. So that's who my heart is for, is, is, is for sinners. In Luke 19, he put it this way. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost that Jesus's heart always goes towards those, goes out in compassion towards those who have great need. See, when we think of what it looks like to be a spiritually mature person, when we think of what it looks like to be a mature church, we cannot separate evangelism from spiritual maturity because we see here the very heart of Jesus always goes towards those who are lost, towards those. And so if we love Jesus, so should our heart, so should our lives be. Perhaps a lack of evangelism in our lives, perhaps a lack of evangelism in the churches that we are in is a sign of a greater spiritual immaturity on our part. Because look at this, you cannot say that you love Jesus and not love those who are lost. You cannot say, I love Jesus, but I don't care about the people around him. They have to go together. You love Jesus. You must love and reach out and care for those who are far from God. If you say you love Jesus, but you don't love those who are lost, you either don't actually love Jesus or you don't understand who Jesus is because his heart always moves in compassion towards sinners, moves in compassion, and he's compelled to do something. We don't have the option as Christians if we claim to want to grow to be like Jesus and to be spiritually mature, to see hurting, needing people far from God without knowing who the gospel is, knowing who Jesus is, what he's done for them, going to hell forever and say, that's not my problem. We don't have that option. If we want to be like Jesus, evangelism must be at the heart of who we are. See, our lack of evangelism is a deeper sign of immaturity often in our lives it's easy to mask this though sometimes, right? Because we, so many Christians would rather just be busy doing more, more activities around ourselves. And so, so many of us will sign up for another Bible study. We'll serve more. We'll do more inside to get away from having to go next door or to have a conversation or to tell our coworker about God. 
See, but maturity is not just those good things that we should do in church, but it involves certainly catching Jesus's heart for the lost and reaching out in love to the people around us. And so we first must catch Jesus's heart for the lost. The second way we can partner with what Jesus is doing in the world is to recognize the abundant opportunities. Recognize the abundant opportunities. In verse 37, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers who are few. And we talked about this two weeks ago, if you were here, that the Bay Area is the most unchurched urban area in the United States. There are approximately 5 million people in the Bay Area who don't just not go to any church, but, but that, excuse me, who don't go to any church at all, not including those who do go to a place that doesn't talk about Jesus. They're not included in that statistic. 5 million people right in this area who are far from Jesus. The, the opportunities are there and are present and are abundant. But I think so often we miss, we don't recognize the opportunities of our time because, and this is true, especially if like me, you've spent many years or even decades in the church because it's, it's different and it's in some ways harder now to share your faith than it used to be. And because it looks different than it used to be, it's easy to, to say, well, the harvest isn't plentiful because what used to work doesn't work anymore. So what did churches used to do when it comes to evangelism? We used to do a few different things. About a couple of decades ago, and I still remember churches that I was involved with when I was younger that would do this. What you would do is they would get together an evangelism team and they would go out, they would walk through neighborhoods, they would knock on people's doors. People would open the door and answer, that's miracle number one, that doesn't happen anymore, right? They would say, hey, we're here from such and such a church we're here, can we talk to you about Jesus? And people would say, yes, invite them into their homes and have hour-long discussions about Jesus. What happens now if you try and knock on some random person's door and ask if they want to talk? They're like, excuse me, I don't know what you're selling, but I don't want to buy it. And they'll slam the door in your face, right? Like, that's weird, right? But we even said, well, we used to be able just to go around and knock on people's doors and tell them about Jesus and the harvest was plentiful then. Well, just because that doesn't work now doesn't mean the harvest isn't plentiful. See, a generation before that was different as well. Generation before that, you could just throw a big event, have good music, bring in a big name speaker, and tens of thousands of people would come to show up and hear about Jesus. Yes, even here in the Bay Area, things like that happened. I was reading about this week. In 1958, the Billy Graham Crusades that were had that were held, excuse me, at the Cow Palace. Now, my first reaction when I read about that was like, wow, I didn't know Billy Graham came to San Martin. Surely the Cow Palace, that must be in San Martin, right? Like, I was like, wow, that's an event center, an actual event center name almost in San Francisco in Daly City. I, I'm still new here, I guess. I've lived for a couple of years, but I didn't realize. But, but here, here's a picture of what this event looked like, just one of the events in 1958 here in the Bay Area. And this is from the Cow Palace's Facebook site. And this is the description that they added along with this picture that I found. For the next 58 days in 1958, approximately 700,000 attendees would pack our main arena for daily, sometimes twice daily, sermons from the powerful Billy Graham. The secretary manager of the Cow Palace at that time recalls seeing more than 2,000 automobiles turned away and at least 18,000 people crowded inside with 5,000 standing in the parking lot. See, it's easy to look back at the 1950s and be like, well, Billy Graham showed up and 20,000 people a day were going to hear about the gospel. The harvest was plentiful. 
but it's not anymore. Because you could put on a big event, rent an arena, get the best music, the best speaker, and you'd have maybe like 500 people show up. You're not selling out arenas, let alone for 58 straight days anymore, right? So we could be like, well, the harvest isn't plentiful anymore. See, but it is, but we just have to change how we do evangelism, not change the message of the gospel, but change how we do it. It's not just knocking on people's doors. It's not just throwing big events. So, so what, what do we need to do? We need to learn how to practice what, what sociologists call contextualization. Contextualization means you take the gospel and you contextualize it for the audience in which you live. If you've ever traveled on any missions trips overseas, you've been taught how to do this, realizing, hey, you're an American, you're going somewhere else, they're not American. And there's things that you use, the words that you say that don't mean things that you think you do. You need to learn to contextualize. See, for some of us, we've lived in a Christian culture for too long. We don't contextualize our faith. And so we go to share the gospel and people are like, what are you talking about? We'll go to our co-work and be like, hey, did you know the Bible says you're a sinner and that unless you repent of your sins, you're gonna go to hell, but Jesus died for you on the cross? They're like, what are you talking about? What's the Bible? Who are you to call me a sinner? And I don't want anything to do with what you have to talk about. Right? They're like, that is so foreign. You are so weird. What you? Now, was everything that you just said biblically true? Well, yes, it was. But they're not from your context. They have no idea what you're talking about. And so we need to learn how do we contextualize the gospel for the place that we live? The place that is, yes, the most unchristian urban area in the United States, but also possibly the most affluent area in the entire world. How do we share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done in this place? Well, see, the reality is, is that every single person you know, no matter how far they are from God, are worshiping something. All of us worship things. We look to something for our ultimate significance, value, meaning, relationship in our lives. We're looking, we're worshiping something. Find what people are worshiping and where it comes up short in their lives. And that's where the gospel can be put in. What do people worship in the Bay Area? We worship career. We worship power. We worship technology. We worship innovation. We worship all of these things. And so to, that, to, the, to the coworker that you work with who, who's been worshiping their career, you can say, hey, listen, I know you've been pursuing that position for so many years and you finally got it. But is it just me or have you noticed, like, is, have you ever asked yourself, is there more to life than just getting up higher on the ranks, getting a little bit bigger house, buying a newer car? Is that really bringing you meaning and satisfaction in life? Because I know for me, it's not but there's something that I found that actually does bring meaning and satisfaction in life. What have you just done? You've talked to something they've worshiped, shown how it comes up short, and you've introduced Jesus into the conversation. Or you could go to your coworker and say, hey, don't you hate that there is constant pressure on us at this job? That we are a slave to the shareholders, the quarterly results, the earnings calls, that it's all about what I do and I have to perform to a certain level of any standing. Doesn't that drive you crazy? What if there was someone who regardless of your performance, loved you and accepted you exactly the way you are. Because I found that in someone named Jesus. So you just took a pressure from their life, something they worship, and you inserted the gospel into it. See, the harvest is plentiful. To reap the harvest looks different than it used to. It's not big events. It's not just randomly talking to people. But through relationship, the harvest is plentiful in our neighborhoods, in our schools, at our works, all the places that God has sent us to. A third way that we can partner with what Jesus is doing in the world is to commit to intentional prayer. 
Commit to intentional prayer in your life. See, the, the response of Jesus to the lack of the, the laborers is actually quite shocking in verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. To my knowledge, this is the only prayer request where Jesus asks his disciples to pray for something. Hey, listen, there's this huge need. What I need you to do, disciples, is to pray that God would send out more workers. There's so many people who want to, so many people who need the gospel, pray that God would send out more people into the harvest. Now, we've been challenging you the last couple of weeks to pray for five people in your life who are far from God, but relationally close to you. And I hope that, that the reason we've done that is not so that by next week, when we're at the next series, you can be like, whew, you can stop praying for them. Good, that was a hard couple of weeks praying for the lost. I'm glad that item's off my bucket list. But to start to bring up to you, hey, this praying for the lost, it should be a regular part of your life. And, and yes, by God's grace, maybe you'll, hopefully, you'll see people come to know Jesus. It doesn't mean your goal is to get that list down to zero and be like, don't have to pray anymore, but that you would start to add more people onto it as you start to see the gospel go forth and people's lives get changed. See, a ripe harvest without workers just becomes a waste. The harvest is ripe, but if there's no workers, it becomes a waste. I learned this in a very real way this summer in our life. We've lived in our house now for about nine months. And so this is our first summer with the trees that we have in our house. And we discovered this summer that one of our trees in our backyard is a nectarine tree. And that thing was cranking out nectarines this summer. It was awesome. I was eating like two or three a day, giving them out to anyone and everyone. I was like, who wants a dozen nectarines? Take some nectarines, take nectarines, take nectarines. I was giving them out everywhere. And when we left for vacation in August, I still had several dozen nectarines that were up in our tree. When we got home from vacation, I had several dozen nectarines that were rotting on the grounds, right? And now it's my project to scrape them off and to clean them up and to get them, to get them gone. Why? Because the, the harvest was plentiful, but there was no one there to work it. I had left. The harvest is plentiful, but we need to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest. See, why is prayer so important for evangelism? Why are prayer and evangelism, why does it go hand in hand? There's so many reasons. I just want to highlight a few. First, it's that it's through prayer that we start to catch God's heart for the lost. Remember that first point that, that we would understand Jesus's heart for the lost people? How do we catch God's heart for the lost? How do we make what Jesus loves what we love? It's, it's through prayer. See, prayer is not so much you telling God what you need, but you aligning your heart to God's will for your life in this world. And as you pray, you'll start to catch God's will for the world and his heart for people in your life, his love for those who are lost. And you will start to catch that love for other people in your life as well. In fact, I think it's safe to say, you will not catch God's heart for the loss unless you start praying for people in your life. Unless you start praying, you will not care about lost people like how God does. That it's through prayer that God will cultivate in your heart and in your life a love for people who are far from God. Prayer is so important for evangelism. Secondly, because we're fighting a spiritual battle. That we fight a spiritual battle. It puts it, puts it this way in Ephesians 6. Paul writes this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, it's a reminder when you share your faith that you're stepping to the front lines of what God is doing in the world. 
If whenever you're in a church and you've been in church for a while, if you've ever heard people talk about spiritual warfare and you're like, that's weird. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Start sharing your faith and you'll start to see some things happen. Start to share your faith because when you share your faith, you're putting yourself at the front of what God is trying to do in the world. And suddenly you'll realize, oh my goodness, I need to pray now more than ever. I need to pray now more than ever. Why? Because you recognize this is a spiritual battle. It's not me that's changing lives. Yes, God's using me, but it's the spirit that is doing it. And prayer reminds us that it's a spiritual battle that we all are are participating in. A third reason why prayer is so important for evangelism is that it teaches us to rely on the Holy Spirit. It teaches us to rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, this is helpful for me in in two specific ways. First, it it helps me to remind myself that I'm relying on the Spirit's work in the life of the other person. You know, the great thing about evangelism, what does God call you to? He calls you to be faithful in sharing the gospel, faithful in the opportunities he gives you. God doesn't have a soul quota that he's looking for you to make every quarter. He's an out there like, oh man, I had five for you this year. You only got to two? What a shame, what a shame. No, what is he saying? He said, I want you to be faithful. Who are the results up to? Ultimately, it's up to what the Holy Spirit does through you, right? You could be faithful in every opportunity to share your, the gospel for the next five years and not see anyone make a decision. You could be faithful in sharing the gospel for the next three months and see 20 people make a decision for faith. You're just being faithful. It's God's spirit that's working through you. See, it takes the pressure off of us. The results, people's lives being changed are not because of how winsome or well-worded your presentation of the gospel is. It's because of the Spirit's work in their life through you. It's not how well, well-versed you were, how, how cunning your argument was. It's simply God working through you. Another way that we, it teaches us to rely on the Holy Spirit is that in evangelism, it helps us to rely on God's timing for things as well. To rely on God's timing. I don't know about you, but on, on your list of five people to pray for, there's people at times of my life who've been on that, who I've prayed for, for decades. Not, not just for months or years, but for decades. And I'm sure for many of you, there's people that you're praying for, friends, family members, spouses, parents, kids, that you've been praying for for decades. And in prayer, it reminds us that, hey, we, we rely on the Spirit's timing of this as well. Because what a joy it has been for me to see people I've prayed for for decades publicly get baptized and profess their faith in Jesus. And it's reminded that, hey, it felt like at times I wanted to wave my hand to God, be like, hey, do you remember this person? Like how many years should I be praying? And I just wanna encourage you, for those of you who've been praying for someone for a long time, don't, don't give up. Trust in God's timing for that person as well, that he is working even when we don't recognize and don't see it as well. So we are to pray, pray that God would send out workers, pray that God would reach our neighbor, reach our coworker, reach our family member. And what's amazing is the fourth way that we partner with God and what he's doing in the world is this, is that as we pray, we realize that you are the answer to those prayers. We realize that we are the answer to our own prayers, right? So in, in Matthew 9, Jesus calls his disciples, hey, pray that God would send out workers into the harvest. What does Matthew 10, the very next verse do? Jesus gets his disciples together and he says, all right, go out. They're like, wait a second. You said to pray that God would send people out. Jesus is like, yup. And you're the answer to your own prayer. You prayed and now it's time for you to go. See, as we pray that God would, hey, God, would someone share the gospel with my neighbor? Would someone share the gospel with my family member? Jesus is like, yeah, someone should. I wonder who. Maybe you should. 
Maybe it's you who are the answer to your own prayers. See, Jesus, in, in his sending out of his disciples in Matthew 10, he, gives to, he answers two common objections that the disciples certainly would have had and that we still have to this day about sharing our faith with others. One of those is, what, what will I say? I don't have all the answers. I don't know the Bible inside and back. There's lots of hard questions. What will I say? In verse 19, Jesus says this, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious as to what you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. See, should we study and prepare? Yes, but God will use his spirit to guide you in those conversations. The reality is, if you're like, well, I, I can't share my faith because I don't know every answer to any question that someone may ask me. Guess what? No one does. No one has every answer to every question about the Bible or Christianity. And sometimes we excuse away, well, I need to know. You don't need to know more. You know what God's done in your life. You know what Jesus did on the cross. That's all you need to know. Start sharing your faith. Should we be prepared? Should we study? Yes, this is an excuse to ignore and to not study. Right? First Peter 3 says that in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet doing it with gentleness and respect. See, we should be prepared. We should be ready for these things, even if we don't have every answer. See, I encourage Christians to have three testimonies ready at all times whenever the situation comes. A testimony is simply, what, what has Jesus done in your life? What difference does Jesus make for you? And I encourage people to have a 20 second, a two minute and a 20 minute testimony ready so that whenever you have the opportunity, you know what you're gonna say. See, if you're on the elevator and you have a Bible with you and someone says, oh, you have a Bible, do you go to church? That's not the place to give your 20 minute testimony, right? You're gonna be like, you're gonna still be in diapers and your life story and they're gonna be out the elevator and they're gone and you missed it, right? You need literally two or three sentences. This is the difference that Jesus makes in my life, right? You need a two minute a two-minute testimony, right? When your coworker says, oh, you, you go to, you go to, uh, tomorrow says, you go to church on Sundays, right? Why do, you, why do you go to church on Sundays? That's kind of weird. You got, just take two minutes. Hey, th this is why I go to church. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Let me, let me briefly tell you a little bit of, of the difference. And then sometimes maybe you'll have opportunities for longer conversations, 20-minute testimonies. Maybe you'll sit down over coffee. You'll take someone out to dinner. You'll, car, you'll carpool with someone. You're coming back down from San Jose. You're stuck in traffic on 101. They can't go anywhere. You're like, all right, now, now I got at least 20 minutes, maybe an hour, who knows, right? Like, I got a long time. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. You don't have to have every answer before you start to share your faith. Be honest if they ask questions you don't know. It's okay. I don't know that either. I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. Let me tell you what difference that the Bible, what Jesus, the gospel has made in my life. A second objection that people often have to sharing their faith is that they're scared. They're fearful. It's hard. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Verse 26, have no fear of them for nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, excuse me, covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and both soul and body in hell. What Jesus reminds us of is that the worst that a person can do pales in comparison to what God can do. We need to stop fearing the opinion of others and start actually fearing what God has and what he says 
to us. And the reality is when it comes to fear in our lives, the reality is that most people are not hostile towards your religious beliefs. Some are, but most people are not hostile towards you or your religious beliefs. Lifeway Research did a study a few years ago. They surveyed several thousand unchurched people, meaning zero religious affiliation, zero church attendance in over six months. They asked them this question. When someone wants to talk about their religious beliefs, how do you respond? 47%, I discuss it freely. 31%, I'll listen, but I won't actively participate. 12%, I'll discuss it with a little bit of discomfort. 11%, 11%, I'll change the subject as soon as possible, right? And we, we, I, you've probably talked to someone like that. I have before, the 11%. But there's an 89% chance that the worst they're gonna do is quietly listen to you. There's a 47% chance that they're gonna lean in and ask you questions. Sometimes in my head, I think it's an 89% likelihood they're gonna change the subject and 11% they're gonna get, but it's the opposite, right? Like they're, they're not gonna be offended for the most part. They're gonna be interested and ask questions. See, it's all about this personal relationship. God has placed you in relationship with others for a reason. The same study asked people, what would be an effective way to get you to visit a church? There's over 10 10 answers listed. Most of them were between 18 to 28% of people said, I would go to church for that. There are things like if I saw a video, if I got sent a postcard, saw a social media ad, saw an outdoor sign outside a church inviting me in, There was two ways though, that over 50% of people said, I would go to church. 51% of people say, if a friend invited me, I would go to church with them. 55% of people say, if a family member invited me, I would go to church with them. See, if, if you have relationship and invite, people are actually more likely to say yes than they are to say no. So we need to be active in sharing our faith, showing the love of Jesus towards others, not not afraid of their response, even though we don't have all the answers. Penn Jillette is a well-known entertainment illusionist kind of um, magician. And he's also a well-known atheist. I was reading this week, he literally has a car with a license plate. Atheist is his license plate, right? He, He likes his atheism. And he recounts a story from several, I think about 10, 15 years ago of when a businessman came after one of his shows and shared the gospel with him and gave him a Bible. And this was his response as a very hardcore atheist. He said this, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize is sharing your faith with someone else. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not, and you think it's not worth telling them because it could make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is far more important than that. See, the reality is, is that we've been given the gift of eternal life, that Jesus has died and rose from the dead for our sin, and he sends us into the world to represent him. So would we catch Jesus's heart for the lost? See the opportunities around us. Would we committed to praying for the people in our lives that we come into contact with? And just a reminder that this week, When you pray, when you ask, man, would someone share the gospel with my friend, with my neighbor, with my schoolmate, with my coworker, with my family member? You are the one who's perfectly placed to do that. 
It'd be weird if I showed up. It wouldn't be weird at all if you did. So may we have the boldness to share and start to see the spirit work through our lives as we share our faith with others. God, we thank you. We thank you that for so many of us in this room, someone, someone shared what Jesus did in their life with us and cared enough about us to bring us to a church. God, maybe it was a parent, a grandparent, a family member, a coworker, a friend. But God, someone loved us enough. They wanted us to know what Jesus has done. God, would we love the people in our lives so much that we need to respond to their hurt? We are compelled in compassion to share the gospel with them. God, may may this be a place of prayer for the lost. And as we pray, would we see that we are the answer to those prayers? God, we don't have all the answers, but would we be your willing servants? Would we be faithful in the opportunities, even this day and tomorrow, this week, that you will give to us to tell people of the goodness of God, the love of what Jesus has done in our lives, and how we are forever changed because of what Jesus has done for us. May you use us in incredible ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.